In David's absence this morning, we're glad to have Dane leading us. Dane and Abby have been led to complicate their life somewhat. They're going to be moving to the Houston area, if y'all didn't know that, about the middle of May. Missouri City, I believe, is the place, right? Missouri City. I, I, I mean, he's got a lot of talent. He needs to use them every week. I get that. God's called to use him. I just don't know if he's considered how he's going to work that church when David's not here and he has to come back up here to lead our worship. I don't know if he's got all that clear yet in his mind, but we are excited about their new call and about how God's going to use them in that place. It'll be an exciting place for them to be. We don't consider it our loss. We consider it their gain. But I'm only half kidding about coming back. To, you'll, you'll get my phone calls. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, Paul writes to the Roman church in chapter 12, by the mercies of God to present yourselves, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be continually transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When we read words like those, we are forever reminded of what it is we're supposed to be about as believers in in Jesus and as followers of his teachings. We're aware that we're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice in a continuing kind of way so that the work of the Spirit will continually be working in our minds, in our hearts, and in our actions. Because the remaking of humanity on this earth is a, is a process that continues into the moment we breathe our, breathe our last on this earth. And that's a hard concept sometimes for people to grasp. That everybody is somewhere along that plane. Either they have never heard the voice of God and have rejected whatever they have heard about God as being real or important, or they are somewhere in the track, even these young children that receive their Bibles today. Um, Someone asked me, when does a child get saved Uh, in the process as the United Methodist Church does it? And I, I didn't know how to tell her that in three minutes or less. She had already told me that she was raised in a Southern Baptist church, so I kind of knew what she was asking. But really, I think your children get saved very early on before they even possibly know it and before you even know it, perhaps. Because I believe once they entertain the idea and begin to hold on to the fact that they love Jesus, like you hear them say down here at the chancel rail from this age on up, they are in a relationship with God that is saving them. Now, you say, yeah, but they didn't really know what they're talking about. Well, yeah, I know some of you who have been coming to church 30 years, and I've heard you explain your faith, and you don't really know what you're talking about either. So I'm kind of like, well, uh," and and sometimes you've heard me preach, and I've gone home, and I've got, oh, boy, I didn't sound like I knew what I was talking about this morning. Faith is a, a living reality. It is a relational truism that marks our life, and it's marked in stages, I'm pretty sure that God has a, a, a tall chart in heaven for each of us. You know what a tall chart is, right? It's where you mark your kids as they get each year older. They get to mark how tall they are and they're watching. Well, I think God is probably watching us grow up 
from the time we have this little bit of faith that we're not even aware of, like I had because my parents took me to church. Now, I didn't hear much about church. Don't get me wrong. I heard almost nothing about church. But I had lots of thoughts. Thoughts like, if you move, daddy will hit you with his big old knuckle on the back of your head. And in that day and age, I knew that I had to get ready to go to church. That meant I had to stand still while they combed my hair until I cut it all off. I knew there was going to be torture, but I knew I must endure. So, because I had to sit still. And I knew that nobody was going to talk except those funny people up front. And so I went every Sunday because if I didn't, I, I, you know, well, there wasn't a choice, actually. That was before parents gave children choices. Uh, I didn't get to make a choice about whether or not to go to church. I went to church, period. I knew we had to go unless somebody was dying or had just died. And if I played sick, I knew what that meant. I stayed the rest of the day into the night on the couch in the sick position. <laughs> didn't matter if I suddenly got healed about 1230. I was sick all day long until the more morning, so that was not an option either. Church was a lot of talk, a lot of which I didn't understand, but this I knew, that we always, always, always went. So I began to learn that this thing called church was really important to mother and daddy. Somewhere along the way, life changed for me, and I was... After revival, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I was baptized and became officially into the fellowship of the church. And I knew that things were different and I needed to act different. And I dwelt on that. I think about five or six weeks, if I remember correctly. I had lots of dreams about it. And I felt this crazy kind of urge that I had to be a preacher. It took me about six weeks to overcome that thought. As I told you before, I just thought, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's the only way I can feel clean. Surely, God's not trying to guilt me into being a pastor. And I didn't tell anybody about that thought until 10 years later or so when I began to struggle with my faith for the first time. So I made it to age 25 or so pretty much unscathed by the Christian church. Even though I'd been a part of it, and I'd sit on the back row every Sunday in church all the way through high school, even though I'd read and led from the pulpit as, a, as youth did to assist in the service. It really hadn't taken over my life completely. And I really knew about this much of the Bible. Not very much. And then I began to study the Bible, and I began to learn a whole lot of things, some of which I didn't like particularly, and some of the things which I didn't particularly agree with. And that's what this morning's sermon is about. We live in a world where people say strange things about God, all kinds of strange things. I heard on a sports talk show about a gentleman who, at the age of 65, decided that his He was trapped. The he was really a she trapped inside his body. Well, I had to listen to the conversation at that point just to see how that could happen at that age after all those years. And he told a little bit about that. And then he said something that made me really listen because he said God was involved in that. So I listened. And here's what he said. He said, he has decided, this is how he told his children about what had happened to him and why his life was changing. He said to his children, when God was creating me, he gave me lots of talents and gifts and abilities. 
I was good looking, I was intelligent, I, I was very athletic, could win in lots of contests, but it was never really me. And all along that way, I discovered that God had decided that the thing to do for me to make me work hard, harder, or kind of in a way that he said it was like, kind of give me something to struggle with, he put this woman's soul inside a man's body. I turned my radio at that point to another channel. I don't know what else he said, but I knew that as this author went on, that's kind of neat how he brought God into his life. And I'm thinking, no, it's really not neat. First of all, God is not capricious like you're talking about. God doesn't give us a birth with an idea of seeing what he can do to us while we're here on earth or how we handle it. That's just not the witness of Scripture when you read it all. It's just not there. So to me, that though is a great example of how our culture, which has the greatest access to the Bible and to its content, more so so than any other culture ever has, we still read it and appreciate it at a very shallow level. And that's what's led to this morning's text, along with the fact that we were presenting Bibles to our third graders, is it's important that we learn how to handle Scripture, how to use Scripture that proves to God and to others that we are a workman who does not have to be ashamed at what we say the Scriptures teach and say. I realize this is a controversial topic, even amongst a congregation like ours, because we all interpret Scripture a little differently. We come with a different set of skills to the task of interpreting Scriptures, and we put scriptures together at a little different rate than others. Some people grow up so spiritual and so quickly that they amaze me according to the years. Some people, it's such a slow process of moving along that you have to look closely at the subtle changes in their hearts and their minds, but they're there. But it is important that we understand what the Bible is and what the Bible is not and how God intended for it to be used. For instance, that's what I wanted to get across with the children. The Bible is not God. It is not Jesus Christ. It is a book about Jesus Christ. We need to be clear about that. The self-revelation of God is a special, special thing. And it really stands uh, in complete agreement with the Scriptures. If you remember the book of Genesis, God wanted wanted to be with Adam and Eve. He wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to talk with them. He wanted to have a relationship with them. And that is one of the first things the Bible tells us is God had to reveal himself to those people so that they could have this relationship. And to do that, he had to talk to them. He had to speak to them. He had to walk around the garden with them. They had to be intertwined together in their lives. God reveals his own self to us. That's the only way we know about God. If God had chosen not to reveal himself to us, we would be wandering around like lost sheep. The first way that he reveals himself to us is called general revelation in theological terms. And that just means that there is a partial disclosure, if you will, of God to humanity in nature. Even in the makeup of the mind that lives inside each human. And of course, even in history. There's a revelation of God in history if we look closer. God uses history to reveal his plans. Let's look first at the, quickly at the first one. Reveals himself in nature. You know, you don't have to be a genius or even a very good scientist to realize something powerful has gone on in our world. 
I mean, things have changed right in front of us. There are things that can't be explained throughout nature. And we have the intellect to be able to grapple with that to, and to grasp what those changes mean. Who can explain really how the tides come rolling in? And they seem to do it on such a precise thing. And scientists will say, well, I can explain it. Well, scientists, can you tell me how the earth expends so exactly on its axis? Because if it didn't, our world would be shattered into tiniest pieces. I don't mean, can you tell me that it does it? I mean, can you tell me how it does it? And can you tell me who started the top that is the earth spinning? Because they would have no answer for that. Can you tell me really how this glob of stuff is flesh and blood? Can you tell me how I'm different than the animal running across the yard? Can you tell me how that happened? Not that it happened. We all can see that. I'm not, somebody just told me they rode a camel with four humps this morning, one of our children. I didn't even know camels had four humps. Did you know camels have four humps? And I said, gullible as I am to that young man, how did you sit if there's so many humps on the camel's back? He said, I squashed some of them together. <laughs> there you are. See, there's an explanation for everything. And sometimes I hear people using the scripture to explain things, and it makes me want to crawl under the couch. They are handling scripture in a way that is damaging to those who do not believe and even damaging to their own progression. But scripture doesn't come to us easily, does it? It's not something that can simply be read and understood and you'll never forget it. It's not something that can be just kind of taken anywhere at any place in the book, start reading and you get a divine message sent straight from God and you know it. I, I know some people that do that that way, but it gives me problems. And the reason it gives me problems is that sometimes they're revelations that come straight from God or contrary to a lot of Scripture. <laughs> so then I had to wonder, is there a revelation true or is the Scripture true? Would Jesus say something that's in contradiction with what he said, in his, said about him in this book? And I go, mm, no. So then I had to go back and work through how that person got to where they are. And is that revelation true that they got from their time in the Scripture? Despite that text, does it come from another place in Scripture where the, what they're saying is really true? They just had the, the wrong Scripture that they were reading to explain it. That happens. That's, called, that's a really spiritual thing, quite frankly. You know, when we're desperate for a word from God or when we think the Spirit is talking to us, it's out of context, it's out of place in the Scripture, and yet the voice is true. And later on, we find a passage that explains it better, what we learned the week before. Well, actually, we just found the right passage in the first place, right? But our need was great, so we got a revelation that was not specifically stated in a particular place. Not only in nature, but also in the makeup of the mind. Oh, my goodness. The brain. Whew. As humans, what a treasure we have between our ears. What a treasure. We don't even begin to understand the brain yet. They do some things with a brain that 20 years ago they would not even have thought of. Ten years ago they didn't know how to even approach it. And yet now we're doing things with a brain we've never done before. And yet we know just a tiny bit about the brain. God put one of them in all of his people. All of the people who were created in his image. And so we have a chance to have a revelation from nature because we have a brain to see, the nature, to see nature and wonder, how did that get to be there? How, that's amazing. How is it so that this all works so well together? 
And then lastly, in general revelation, there is the idea of history. Just to say history, you say, well, how does history have to do with God in Revelation? God's purposes and God's plans will be carried out on this earth. And they are best revealed and understood in history as we study the whole world rather than in individuals. You may thwart, I may thwart God's plan for me, but I can't thwart God's plan for the world. And neither can you. Because God's plans will come to pass. And it's, better, it's so much easier sometimes when we look at the blessing of God. Do you look at your whole life or do you work, wake up one morning with a toothache and go, this toothache is killing me. Why is God not blessing me? Well, if you take a big look at your life, God has blessed you tremendously. Unfortunately, you probably didn't take good care of your teeth or you got bad genes and you got a bad tooth. But that, that individual event doesn't swallow the whole rest of your life. So therefore, we need to even understand our own lives in relation, not to this particular events, but to the whole. And certainly, we need to look at how God, how far God has brought humanity in just the last 500 years. Just think since the Protestant Reformation, what's happened. Before that time, only the priests in the Roman church and the Eastern Orthodox Church knew anything about Scripture. People couldn't read the Bible. It was not entrusted to us. Just think, in 500 years, all that we know about the Scriptures has come to pass. It's amazing. It's, it's stupefying. It's so imp- incredibly important. But that has something to say about general revelation. But what we really love as Christians and as evangelicals, too, is we really love the part about the special revelation. You might, it's the revelation that we talk about where God reveals himself personally in Jesus Christ. That is the fullest expression of who God is. It's in Jesus Christ. There we see God when we see and read about the man Jesus. Now, not all of God is ever disclosed to us for a very good reason. If God tried to put into our little heads everything there was to know about God, we'd explode. And I don't mean figuratively. I mean we'd explode. God is an infinite being. God is outside of all creation. That's what the scriptures tell us. And yet God comes in and out of creation as God chooses. He came specially into this creation in the man named Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. And through his death and resurrection, we have life. We have eternity. You say, yeah, that's all simple stuff. I realize it's simple stuff. But do you realize how often people get that mixed up? In terms of the revelation that is special, and the point of it all is Jesus. The Jewish church has still missed it. Jesus was more than a special teacher. Jesus is greater than Buddha or another special intelligent person. Jesus was the Son of God, is what the Bible tells us. That kind of divine revelation can be believed, if it's chosen to be believed, In many different ways, you can look at the miracles, you can look at nature, you can look at the love people have for others, you can read about the books, you can read about Jesus there. But most importantly, it's become believed when it becomes personal. So often people ask me, what what the Bible thing, what kind of book is that? There's a simple answer to that. It's a book that tells you that allergies are real, for instance. 
And if you're like me, they're very real about the last two weeks. God breathed. That's what the scriptures are. God breathed. They're more than just a book. And that's the hardest thing for people to get by. And you know how you convince them to believe the Bible's more than just like any other book? <laughs> you really can't. That's why you really shouldn't try. Because you'll just get into arguments about it. And it'll just be as useless to you as was the arguments going on in the church of the men that were named by, Tim, by Paul when he was writing to Timothy. You see... The Bible is an inspired book because I believe it is. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of experience after having believed, but it started with faith. I believe the Bible is inspired, and I believe that God inspired all the people who wrote it. And then people will say, who are not believers in that premise, how did God do that? Were they nothing but robots? And I say, no, no, but somehow the Spirit came through them and inspired and guided the process of the writing of the books so that they would become the inspired scriptures as they wrote them. So that the truth that God wanted to convey to us was disclosed to us by the Holy Spirit. God disclosed, God self-revealed, and God breathed scripture. And then there is the Spirit who helps us interpret what the Spirit has already inspired in the Scripture. When you get all those ingredients together, then you begin to have understanding of Scripture. But without all those ingredients there, with a person who's so suffering from their fallen nature, sin and self-centeredness and incredulous, forget that word, (laughs) their bewilderment, (laughs) it's a work in progress, right? It all comes together to lead people to what they believe and come to accept as God's word. But you can't make somebody believe or prove to them that God wrote this book because they'll start quoting stuff to you. Even seminary professors at some seminaries will quote stuff to you that you'll find other seminaries where other professors are disagreeing with because they'll start talking about, well, what about all those books? Uh, What about other books that were written there? Weren't they good? Oh, there were a lot of good stuff written there but it was not deemed to be Scripture. Oh, yeah, that's that can't. When they, a bunch of Christians get together back in 400-something, they'll say, and have a, a council or something, and they vote, voted it in the books they liked, and they became the Bible. No, that's not what happened at all. It's what history records is happening. But what really happened, church believes, is that the leaders of the church from all over came together, and they found that the people who had been reading these letters and these scriptures for years had so much agreement about those that were inspired by God and came from God's own leaders as apostles and teachers that they were the ones that were to be in the text. Was that a pretty good decision? I don't know. It stood up now for all those years. All those years. 400 to the year 2015, we have the same canonical Bible. It's a little different from the Roman Catholic version, yes. They have a section of books we don't include in, this, in the Protestant version. But still, those letters were agreed upon almost unanimously with the exception of three or four. And the, they came to be so widely accepted that they were included in the canon. 
In fact, go all the way back to the year 100 and some of the ancient fathers were listing most of the books that we now have in our Bible even then before it became official. So the, the canon didn't just happen as people chose. The, ca- the canon happened, the canon being that list of books that make up the Bible. It happened because people could sense that God was working through these writings. And the church of Jesus Christ, those who walked with Jesus, could recognize such things while they were with him and after he was gone. And those earliest believers who were the closest ones to the life of Jesus continued that understanding. What we need and what we can understand, God discloses to us so far as it relates to the main purpose, which is to talk to us about saving faith. That is more important in the Bible than the logic or the reasoning that is there. Its primary goal is to promote faith, to make faith available, to call people to faith. Its primary reason is not to explain to humans who think they are more logical than God why logic is not its primary point. There are things in the Bible that are both true and they are contradictory and they're still both true. God is God. We worship one God. But there are three persons in God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Logical? If so, you need to check yourself in on your way out, on your way home. It's not logical, but it's true according to the Scriptures. Do I believe it? Absolutely. Do I understand it? Enough to preach a sermon about it every now and then and acknowledge that it's very hard to grasp if it's only grasped logically. But if it's grasped through the eyes of faith with the Spirit that inspired this Christmas whispering in your ear, then it becomes reachable. It becomes something that can build you up and move you forward. This kind of revelation that God gave us, because God wanted to talk to us. He wants to be with us. And if God was going to create us to be in relationship with him, he had to talk to us. You can't be in relationship without talking. Now, I know I need to make a disclaimer there. It's true that some men try to be married without talking. And it's true, it messes things up, right? Men, right? No, 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 no. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to acknowledge that's true. I'm not going to say that, no. It's true that you don't want to argue, but it is good to talk in a relationship. It's good also for us to hear from God and to know what God is expecting from us. Now, the title of the sermon's message today was simply this. Scripture is precious, handle with care. The church is always involved in controversy, it seems, over this issue or the next. And it's always about how they interpret Scripture. It doesn't matter what they say with their lips. It's always about how they interpret Scripture. These problems cannot be overcome given the boundaries of humanity because we are all sinful. We are all fallible. And none of us has complete nor perfect understanding. So when you get down to the details of Scripture and studying a passage, even the construction of the sentences themselves from the Greek, from the Hebrew to the English become problematical. 
and great scholars who studied years and years and years, basically all of their lives, will not agree on the exact translation. That doesn't mean the Bible and its truths are not cannot be apprehended by us because they can. It just means sometimes we have to dig deeply to find them. And so I'm going to just suggest these things to you. It means that you'd have to read your Bible with more care. You'll have to study more, maybe even read less, if you really want to understand. Because what we like to do is read, get a quick answer. We're Americans, right? It's 2015. We don't want everything quick. If If you have any doubt, just Google how quick we like to live, and it'll tell you. You have to have the context. You have to have the whole thought of the Scriptures in mind. If you don't have the whole of Scriptures in mind, you can get confused. I know that I, I've talked to somebody just recently who was thinking about the Scriptures, and they were telling me as we were visiting that uh, we were eating around a meal and he couldn't have pork. And I said, I understand that's kind of a cultural thing. He said, no, it's a biblical thing, and it's from the Old Testament. I said, well, yes, but didn't Peter have a new vision? And he said, no, not really. First time I've heard this, so I'm sharing it with you. And he said he saw all the stuff come down from heaven and said it was permissible to eat, but he didn't eat any of it. <laughs> okay. All right. So I smiled and said, I see what you mean. And I left it alone. He was a Christian. He had a firm belief in what he was doing. I wasn't about to say anything about that. In a different context, I might have tried harder to explain how there was in the Bible a sense in which it is progressive. All the truth in the Old Testament is made complete in the New Testament and in the person Jesus Christ. So it doesn't mean that everything you learn in the first part of Pauline's writings are equal to the last part of what Paul wrote. Now, this was very challenging to me. If I'd ever been told that at Perkins while I was in school there, it would just been another reason for leaving. And I actually heard a professor who I admired greatly who said that he was talking about the Gospels one day in class and said that's the best, most important work in the Scriptures. That's primary. Well, boy, I was on the edge of my seat just racing to follow along in his coattail as he was going to his next class, and so was I, because I had to ask him a question, which I was sure he was going to fail. He'd only been teaching about 60 years. I was so bright. I was sure I could communicate my truth. And I said, what I heard you say was that some scripture is more important than other scripture. And he turned around and he looked at me. He said, yes, you did hear that. The words of Jesus are the most important words we have, period. Everything else is second to that. And I said, but all of Scripture is inspired. He said, sure it is. But all of it is not of equal importance. That kind of wrecked my brain. Because I never thought I would hear that walking outside the buildings, between buildings at Asbury Theological Seminary. But I did. And I've had to contemplate that. And as I was going back to reading up on some theological statements about Scripture and its usage, I ran across one that just said, remember, that's why I repeated it several times today, that the primary, the the first mean of our understanding God is the man Jesus and what he did. 
So we have to read Paul in relation to that. You're, are, you know, some of you have gone way ahead of me, and I'm sorry for that. It's not really a great idea on this topic. But you've raced down the road to say, so you're saying that some of what Paul wrote is not right, according to Jesus. I did not say that. It's so important that you take what I say in context. It's like reading the Scripture. What I did say is that Jesus is the primary revelation and is the most important thing in Scripture. He is the embodiment of the rest of Scripture. And all of Scripture can be understood in light of his life, death, and resurrection among us. That's what I intend to say. Context. Understand the key terms in the text. You'll have to buy a $15 theological dictionary. Every home ought to have one, at least one. You've got to know the literary context. What went on before and after the verse that you want to use and quote outside its context. What does the whole canon have to say about the topic you're studying? What was its original meaning? How is that meaning applicable in today's culture? Cautions. I wrote down here in circle it. Cautions. You can read on the informational level, and a lot of people are very wise about the Bible, but they do not read it with faith. They are not believers. It's a book to them. You can read it on the story level. Some people know the stories and they like the big picture. I'm kind of one of those people. But also you can read it on the devotional level where God will speak to you through whatever you're reading. It's an amazing, spiritual, otherworldly experience. You can read it on the study level where you get the deep truths of Scripture mined out and where you really begin to understand what God is trying to do on this earth. Be careful. Make sure that you're getting what the Spirit intended to inspire in you. Now, if all of this is truth, you might say, well, this is just too hard a book to understand. We, it's just too much work. Aren't we ashamed? <laughs> I mean, aren't we ashamed? Think about it. Think about your life. I'm going to leave you with this thought. The most important thing in the world is Jesus to us as evangelicals. The most important book about Jesus is in the four Gospels and the rest of the books that point to Jesus. How much time have you spent taking in God's Word at a deep level? Now, I'm, I'm aware that I sat where you sat for many years and I didn't do a very good job of searching the Scriptures at all. And I can promise you that after a lot of years of searching the scriptures for things, there's still a lot I don't know. I should have started earlier. But I also know that what the scriptures always teach us is that while the past is important and we can learn from it, the future is even more important. Whatever you've done with the text to this point, be a workman who needs not be ashamed when you stand before your Lord. Learn the scriptures. Learn them at your ability level, your capability level. If you think the Bible is important and you've not bought any tools to really understand it, you need to buy some. It's more important than your toothbrush. You all have toothbrushes, right? It's more important than your razor. It's more important than your lipstick. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching there probably. But the reality is the scriptures are the most important thing you can have in your house. And if you don't have the tools to really understand them and have not gone the trouble to figure out 
which tools you should have, you're always going to read the Bible on a very childlike level, arguing on, with, about the scriptures on a very childlike level. We need to grow up. The world is dying around us, and we need to be thinking Christians so that we can share with them the heart of the gospel in a way that they might have the opportunity to hear it. Father God, we thank you for your presence with us today. Oh, how we thank you for Jesus and the stories of Jesus that we sing and remember. And oh, how we thank you for the word. And those who were closest to Jesus and the things they wrote about you that convey to us a sense of how incredible of a human he was. For he was human in our midst. And he was divine because he was sent from God. Now, Father, if there's someone here today who really doesn't have a sense of who Jesus was and needs the church, needs to know that they are known and loved, let them come forward. If there are those here, Lord, who are looking for a church where they will handle the word of God as, as well as possible that they can, each person on their own level, each person with their own ability, each person with the same intent, to pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's anybody who needs a fellowship where they can do that in a great environment, we hope they'll hear your call to become a part of this congregation. Bless all that we share in this closing song, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name.